Dr. John Deem, or John, as I'm allowed to call you. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. So you are a psychiatrist, and I want to like break it down before we even get into anything about you. Some people listening don't know the difference between a psychiatrist and a psychologist. So clear it up for them. What do you see as the main difference? A few different syllables. <laughs> But beyond that, no. So psychiatrists go to medical school. We're medical doctors. Uh, and at the end of your medical school, everyone has to choose some sort of specialty, mm -hmm. right? Uh, if you don't, that's internal medicine and family medicine and primary care doctors. Mm -hmm. Others become surgeons and some of us become psychiatrists. So mental health focused, we go through residency. We are experts in medication management in addition to the medical illnesses that mm -hmm. have to kind of be thought of for mental health and how are we organizing medications? What are we prescribing? And does it make sense for like the medical illnesses that people have? So I think of you as a physician that has focused on the brain and the mental health parts of our brain. Yes. And our, our boarding agency is psychiatry and neurology. So we have mm. to know a lot of like wow. neurology in addition to what we do. What made you choose that over like being a cardiologist or an orthopedic surgeon or like how does one, so I'm going to pursue this part of medical. I thought of a few different options and ultimately I felt like psychiatry and mental health was an area of medicine that helped people kind of get back to this level of living and enjoyment of life mm -hmm. that other issues or other areas of medicine were sometimes disease management, mm. right? Mm -hmm. And this kind of felt like, all right, well, now your diabetes is under control. Mm. Now what? How do you get back to this place of wanting to enjoy things and, and get back to like living? And I kind of felt like that's where we stepped in. Mm. I love that. And I am so grateful that you are making appearance today in my first podcast in our space. So this is very exciting. You're also a neighbor down the street. And we met, for all of those who don't know how amazing you are, when we first met, you brought me cheesecake. Yeah. So you are a ent entirely in my inner circle now. So welcome. I just wanted everybody to know what the difference was straight out the gate. So I want to read something that I found on your website that I think is beautiful. So I just want to read it Please. to you. So you wrote, after years of working with people from all walks of life, faiths, creeds, and nationalities, you stumbled on a simple but challenging answer to be loved, to be accepted, and to be connected to those we choose to love and accept. From being the lead doctor on inpatient units, treating those with serious mental illness, to comforting a new mother overwhelmed in a routine appointment, the lesson is clear and lasting. Connect, grow, be you. That's how I wanted to introduce you because I thought that that was very much a summary of what I know of you so far. How, how did you come to have this view about mental health and serving clients? Well, thank you very much. It's very flattering. Uh, my view came, so I've, I've worn a lot of hats over my career and the the sheer, I think, scope of, of what I've done in terms of inpatient, which is sometimes locked units, often locked units yeah. and people going through serious crisis. And then fast forward to sometimes you're in an appointment with a, a mom who's just overwhelmed with yeah. being a new mom and, and life matters and things going on. And Walk, uh, walking through those paths and helping others kind of navigate that, it just became clear that connection, building a sense of who you are, who you're close to, the relationships that are working, the relationships that maybe aren't working and kind of how you navigate that really became a very important part of that. Because at the end of the day, we can prescribe medications, things will get better, right? Medications are effective, they do their job. But what happens after that? And it's building meaning and connection that became really, really obvious to me as I went through these paths. So part of this 
podcast and the gate, the, the aim of this podcast is to break the way that clinicians or providers are doing things and to introduce new ways. I think that most of us who are listening to this probably have experienced a psychiatrist that is gives you the 15 minutes, checks in about like, okay, how are your symptoms doing? Let me see you later. Here's more medication. And yeah. when I learned that you actually spend time getting to know who the client is and that your first option is not to do medication management, but to actually address holistically who they are as a person, what their life looks like, who they're interacting with in those relationships, I was like, whoa, breakers of stigmas. How, how did you come to that? Like, I, I love all what you're saying. It's like, yes, it's about connections. It's about people. It's about relationships. How did you break that sort of model that I'm seeing with other psychiatrists where it's like, I got 15 minutes, yo, give me what you got. And then you're out. Like, how, how, what, how is that? Yeah, no, I love that question. That's, that's great. I, I think some of it is structural, right? Uh, for people that are working in different clinic systems, that's really kind of all you get. And they're not always, even for those doctors or psychiatrists that may be more inclined to talk with people and get to know them more, that may not really be kind of what the structure around them is. Mm -hmm. I have the luxury of being able to do my own practice like you have. Mm -hmm. So that gives me a lot of laterality in what I want to do. But the interest of it was the medications are useful, right? They're kind of a tool. And something I explained to a lot of clients who come in is, is that when you're building a house, mm -hmm. you need certain tools for the foundation. But when you're done with that, it, you have to go use other tools. So yeah. medications are helpful to kind of put a floor underneath somebody and they should have an endpoint. They should have a point at which you probably don't need this anymore. Mm -hmm. The goal is, is to get you to a place where you can build other aspects of your life, build out things that are, 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 will connect you with happiness, joy, people in your life. Those are the things that will sustain you. Those are the things that will help you get out of the other side of depression once you get one foot in front of the other. So really spending time with people um, and being able to explore that part of their lives mm -hmm. just became so obvious to me that the medications, I tell people like, this is a five minute conversation. This is the easy part of the conversation. The rest is all, the hard part is the other part of this. What's going on in your life? Why aren't more psychiatrists adopting this approach? That's a great question. I think some, you know, we are a medical model, right? So we are trained in, in therapy as we go along, but certainly not as extensively as I think uh, most therapists and certainly not ascites and psychologists. So I think it's a comfort level. Some, they adopt more of that medical model and, you know, medications are the answer or they see themselves as a smaller piece of it, right? Okay. That if there are others who are doing therapy or social work or that aspect, that their role is going to be a little bit smaller and kind of mm. in the medication focused area. Like I said, I just, you know, I've seen, they can be wonderful things. I've seen people turn around amazingly with these medications, but that's almost never the full story. There's just so many other things. There's so much other complexity going on in their lives. And how do you help someone? And often when people have been depressed, anxious, and very symptomatic, they withdraw, right? So medications help get them out the door. But now what? Now we got to yeah. talk about, like, how do you actually maintain your health? How do you eat right? How do you get some prioritize your sleep? How do you exercise? How do you do those things that we just know a human body needs to have a healthy mind? So what you're saying is the medication is there to help you kind of stabilize, but you still have other work you have to do. You cannot just rely on this medication and be like, I'm good. I just got a pill, which is not what our culture uh, subscribes to us doing right now with how we take care of our mental health. 
Yeah, yeah, that's that's absolutely right. It does feel that there's sometimes a, a, a pill for an answer. The, the answer lies in the form of a pill and that there's a pill for every problem. Um, I think that, you know, there are things that are certainly helpful. Uh, obviously, these medications are effective. They work. I stand by them. But the rest is the, the next 80 percent of what happens is after that. And so what I hope I hear you say is you also need to address your mental health with talk therapy on top of the medication, right? Can you speak to that a little bit? Oh, yeah, yeah. I I can only think of a couple of times where someone had pretty mild symptoms. We put them on a little bit of Prozac, and suddenly that was just the thing that they needed to click into place. Everyone else usually has to talk about kind of what's going on in their lives. How they got there, how they got symptomatic, you know, was this, where the symptoms started to become problematic for them is never a straight path. It's never just a simple, you know, it's a chicken and the egg. You never really know which, which happened first. So medications are helpful to get a floor underneath someone, but then we got to figure out like the other patterns, the other things that are going on in someone's life. And we don't have a pill for that. You got to just sit down in front of someone who knows what they're doing and talk to them. Which leads me to my favorite topic, relationships, right? So... When I'm having a mental health issue, it's not just me. I'm not living in a bubble, so it impacts my relationships. Yeah. Is that something that you can address a little bit for the partner that's listening right now that doesn't really understand why their partner needs medical management? They don't need medical management. Why does my partner need it? Is, is it a crutch? Is it them just not being strong enough? Can you speak to that? Because I, I see a lot of that as a couples therapist is my clients come in they don't really understand their partner's mental health issues. And I can see them struggling without with trying not to be judgmental, mm -hmm. right? So can you explain for that partner that's listening, like, no, <laughs> it's not that. They're not weak. They're, there's something else happening for them. Yeah, I, this does come up a lot, especially since a, a lot of people that I see, are they're married, they're in long-term couples, and they're coming to me, and I'm seeing them generally on their own. And there's this kind of hidden conversation, which is what am I going to tell my husband or what am I going to tell my wife? Kind of what does this mean for me? And I have to talk it over with them. Um, so it's an incredibly personal choice, right? Someone has gotten to a place that they feel they're dealing with something and it's at a point where it's being problematic enough that they've decided to come see a doctor about it, right? Which something I like to normalize with patients is, you know, this, we talk about depression, we talk about anxiety. It's not a very different conversation if we talk about diabetes. Yeah. You have this thing that has shown up. It's become problematic. You have symptoms related to it. And one part of the answer for recovery is you got to talk to a doctor, get a, an opinion, and probably start some treatment. And then we kind of figure it out from there. So for the partners out there that struggle to kind of understand that, sometimes you just have to take the same leap of faith and trust in the process that your partner is. Yeah. It may be related to relationship issues. It may not. It may not have something to do with what's happening in the relationship, but this person's going through something and they have decided to take this step to explore medications and seeing a psychiatrist or seeing a therapist. Mm -hmm. And I think the role of a, a partner is, is that sometimes you have to just let them go through what they need to go through. Yeah. You, it's that uh, if you want well for them, you have to just let them explore that process a little bit. And being supportive of that, they are already probably dealing with their own self-criticism, judgment, worry about the stigma, because there still is a little stigma around taking medication. We're certainly not where we were, but there is this own internal conflict about what does it mean that I have to do that? And then having to deal with your partner's judgment at the same time is, is a 
is a lot to deal with. It's a lot. And for the partners out there that maybe don't quite understand this or haven't gone through this themselves, the what I always like to say is, is that no one walked into my office to stay the same or get worse. Mm. Everyone's trying to get better, yeah. right? And they're trying to figure out exactly how they do that. They've gotten to a place where now isn't working. We we got to work towards something better for you know the future version of you, the person in a few weeks to a few months from now. So even if a partner maybe doesn't understand or has some stigma associated with it, I always like to put that asterisk in of your partner, the person that you are with and love and vice versa, is trying to do something better. They're trying to do something different. Even if it doesn't entirely make sense to you, I think this is where you have to trust in the process a little bit. Trust in their judgment too. And they probably are influenced by the fact that they understand that their mental health issues are not happening in a bubble, that they are impacting the relationship and that they're strong enough and brave enough to do something that they don't know will make it better, but they're aware of the impact on the relationship, which I always applaud. There's a, a story that I like to share. There was a, a woman who came to me, an attorney, and uh, she, this was COVID. There were a lot of people who left kind of the great resignation, right? Mm -hmm. So people left the firm and all of that work just started piling up on the attorneys that remained, her included. Married, had a young child, happily so. And just in the course of her stress and with work, she ended up very depressed, very anxious, mm -hmm. started having suicidal thoughts, which mm -hmm. was really scary. scary and out yeah. of place for her. She'd never dealt with anything like this before. So uh, Prozac, good old fashioned Prozac, been around for decades. And as we kind of explored her symptoms and explored just her life journey, she was starting to connect some dots of, oh, wow, I would get really stressed out in law school to the point where it's like I would start having diarrhea and all these other things. I think I'm a little bit of a high strung person. So mm -hmm. we got her on some medication. So the, the severe symptoms, the significant depression, which had kind of blended into suicidal thoughts, right, um, started to get a lot better. But then as she got a little bit farther down the road and started to feel better, she said, oh, holy crap, I like myself on Prozac and my husband likes me on Prozac. She's like, mm. I'm, I'm calmer, I'm more present, I'm able to dis like let work go. I'm more present and I feel like I'm a better mom. So that was someone that she realized that this had been there for a while. It just really kind of had COVID and the work situation was gasoline on that yeah. fire. But this was a time where her husband rolled with it and ultimately came to a place where he agreed with her. It's like, you know, I think you do better on this. This was This was a good move for you. And what you're speaking about is something that I think is important for us to talk about is you can be your your partner's advocate, right? You can be a collateral source for them to say, hey, um, you know, Dr. Dean told me that there's these potential side effects. I mm -hmm. may not see them because I'm just kind of being in this bubble of the right. medication. You can help me see if I'm experiencing some of the side effects or if I'm doing something different than I normally do or I'm responding in different ways. Absolutely. And to that point, you know, uh, I, I think anyone who goes down this journey is always worried that yeah. the the medications will have side effects so they'll, they'll change me in some way yeah. my experience is not not really they're not i tell people all the time they're not happy pills they're not going to make you dance in the streets <laughs> uh they put a floor under you they don't change your personality it's just to kind of help get you back to a place where you're you can put one foot in front of the other just be more functional than you were but i always tell them you know the subjective sense of i'm less depressed i'm less anxious whatever that is lags and usually it's partners, it's people in your life who are like, wow, you actually, you seem better. You seem different. Yeah. You seem more relaxed. You seem more engaged. You seem just to have more energy and motivation. So often partners, even if they come in with some reservation, are the ones who start to see the benefit first. How would a partner start a conversation with their 
partner about things that they're noticing that maybe have, you know, some implications that maybe you should go see Dr. Deem because I'm noticing some things. How might they suggest that? That's a that's a million dollar question right <laughs> maybe there. Maybe that's more a question for a couples therapist. Maybe I just like <laughs> turn the tables on you because it it is. I mean, you sometimes have to delicately oh, yeah, tell absolutely. your partner that there's some things. I think that all great conversations in a relationship start with I love you, but mm. I love you, but th- you know, yeah. I'm worried. I'm worried about you. I care about you. This is what I saw a few months ago where you were and where I think you are now. And I'm, I'm worried that you you're struggling with something. I think yeah. it might be time to go like, I, I can only be so much for you. You know, um, even mental health professionals, yeah. we don't wear that hat in our relationships, yeah. right? Even yeah. us as sure, learned. Tell us to stop therapizing. Though. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but at the end of the day, we have some skin in it too. So we, yeah. uh, you know, we can reflect that. I'm worried about you, you know, something seems off and I think it's time to actually like take some different steps. And that's often what I see more men, um, uh, more wives. Suggesting uh, gently uh-huh. as they make you an appointment and drive you over to the appointment. Yes. Oh, you have no idea how often that's happened. Of like, oh, my wife's kind of circling yeah. around the block yeah. for the next hour. Uh, but, you know, for these symptoms, they show up differently in everybody. And I think if you think depression, you're going to think of the commercial that has the it's black and white and the sad ladies crying out, looking out the window. Right. Yeah. It's not true for everybody. It shows up in a, in a variety of forms. So for men, sometimes that's just like being really off or irritable or feeling like they have a short fuse, mm-hmm. being disconnected and feeling like I'm not engaged as a parent or as a husband and I'm just kind of in this chronic place of worry. My wife wonders why I'm up three times a night or why I'm waking up at 4 a.m. and can't get back to sleep. Those are the things that usually start to where a partner starts to say, boy, you you don't seem like yourself. I think let's start the conversation of what we what we do from here. Mm -hmm. So what you're saying is, is that I may be in denial about it or I think it's just a phase I need to work through. And actually, my partner is probably more aware of what's happening to me than I might be myself. Yeah. You know, uh, so I, I keep coming back to depression. I say that's it's a really common condition. But the same is true for anxiety. The same is true for some for a lot of these other conditions. But one of the first things it does is it robs you of your motivation. Yeah. Takes that away. Right. So you just really get in it. And one of my sayings is that you can't solve the equation when you're one of the numbers. So sometimes when you're just in it and you're feeling what you're feeling and it doesn't feel good, you really do lose some sense of, even if you know something's wrong, sometimes that next step of motivation is just out of reach. And that's where partners can really be an advocate. And I tell people all the time, it's like some of this in the beginning is just borrowed motivation through your partner, through a professional that we're going to help you take the next step forward. That could be, that's going to be a combination of probably medications and talk therapy and you just got to white knuckle it for the first you know month until you start to get your own traction yeah i tell my clients i'm going to lend you my hope until you have it yourself Mm. right because i see that you can get better i know what this looks like Mm -hmm. i've trust that the process exists and i'm here to walk you through it and i i'll be waiting on the other side Mm. So, that's, that's really lovely. I like that. Well, I'm I mean, probably going to steal that. <laughs> Feel free. I like yours too. We'll just steal from each other. So, okay. One of the things I want to shift to that I think is important for us to talk about and is something that you have some expertise in mm-hmm. is substance misuse. Yes. Right. You, you've had a lot of history with that. And mm-hmm. that of course is even more exponentially off the charts since COVID and definitely impacts partners. Yeah. Right. What, words of wisdom do you have for a partner who's listening who's 
other partner is going through, working through either identifying that they have it, trying to stay, you know, sober, trying to like deal with withdrawals, like, and they don't understand that world. What, what do you have to tell them about biologically, you know, neurologically what's happening for that person? Yeah. And you're right. COVID has kind of accelerated that, not just kind of across the board, but you know, what we're seeing is more women in their thirties struggling with alcohol. I think it was like 300% or something crazy percentage. It's been wildly on the rise. And I'm seeing this even in my practice and who's getting referred to me of COVID was this worldwide event that no one was prepared for, right? It trapped us all in our homes and kind of happy took away- Happy hour all day long. <laughs> happy hour all day and took away hope that it was gonna like get better, right? Yeah. We've lived in that for so long and people started self-medicating. And so I, you know, a little bit of Chardonnay in the afternoon became a lot of Chardonnay right. by the evening, right? right? So I'm seeing a lot more of that for sure. In terms of, you know, a partner who's trying to walk through that with their significant other, it's a challenge, right? Um, a person, first and foremost, has to be motivated to do something about it. There has to be that kind of spark within. This is a hard conversation I have with not just partners, but other family members, especially when they're dealing with something like this, is that you can and should be as supportive as you possibly can, but on some level, you have to kind of know where you end and they begin. Yeah. All the ultimatums, all the threats, all the I hope you woulds and why aren't you doing this because of me, the family, the, the kids can only get you so far. The person has to really recognize it as a problem for themselves and want to do something about it. And how you can reflect that back to them um, is taking, you're, I'm sure, very familiar with what we call motivational interviewing, right? Very. Very. (laughs) So it's rolling with the resistance. It's understanding that this has arrived and become a coping mechanism for this person, probably not entirely by choice, right? We call it addiction. We have a word for it because if you could just turn it off, we wouldn't need a word for it, right? So... Can you talk about that piece a little bit? I was hoping you talk, because here's what I struggle with as a couple's therapy. Let's say one partner's identified as having an issue with alcohol, right? Addiction, I know, is a triggering word. So I use the misuse or like a coping skill that's not functioning well for you, right? And so there seems to be a lot of difficulty, fairly, but a lot of difficulty for the partner that is not trapped in the coping skill, having an understanding that they're not choosing the alcohol over you, right? So can you talk about like the mechanics of, because I am not you, I don't have the understanding of the brain the way that you do. It's not that it's in either or, it's and. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I kind of put it uh, this way through like heavy handed uh, analogy is, is that, you know, if you hold your breath long enough, eventually you got to breathe. So that's kind of how it feels when someone's really in the throes of addiction. And I, uh, as an addiction specialist, I like the term. I throw it around all the time Um, because I think it really kind of, it cuts to the core of the matter. I think that the reason I'm so sensitive to it, which is a good point, in couples, Mm -hmm. when you're coming in and you're saying, the reason we're having problems in our relationship is because my partner's an alcoholic. (laughs) <laughs> that creates defensiveness, right? Yeah, because totally. what it's implying totally. is, oh, if it wasn't for me and my alcoholism, you would stop being a nag, right? Mm-hmm. Is that what you're trying to mm-hmm. say? So I think that I 
tiptoe around that because it seems like, and I'm saying I'm agreeing that that's the identified patient uh-huh. and it gets tricky as a couples therapist. So I will often refer to it as like a maladaptive coping skill. Your partner has their own maladaptive coping skills. Can we talk about what difficulty that particular component is creating in parts of our relationship? Yeah. So I have more of a dance right. I have to do. Absolutely. But I hear you. It's an addiction. One to one, I get to I get to say, all right, there's a... <laughs> This is probably, this is what's going on. Um, so the, like I was saying before, if you hold your breath long enough, right, eventually at some point you feel like you need to breathe. And yeah. when someone is dealing with addiction, when they're dealing with substance uh, abuse, it's become both a psychological and physiological yeah. coping mechanism for them. You're so dependent on it. Your body needs it in order to not have DTs or. Right. Okay. So the, what typically happens first is kind of the psychological part, which is the, I feel intense feelings. Mm-hmm. And often it's not the people you think it's the people that seem the calmest, mm-hmm. right? Cause they're just a storm inside. They're just yeah. not letting you know what's yeah. happening, but they're feeling intense feelings of whatever it is. And then they are trying to manage those feelings and somewhere either through a little bit of their genetics, their family structure, partying too much in college that kind of lit something inside of them alcohol, drugs, whatever it is, has become kind of that way of soothing that. And it works for the moment, but that moment doesn't last very long. So pretty soon they're back to those feelings when they sober up and they need more and they need it more often. And then you're kind of off to the races. And what starts out as kind of that self-medicating aspect, that self-soothing aspect, then we start tipping over into the physiologic component because now you are altering your brain chemistry, yeah. right? So when that substance is out of your system, your brain notices. Yeah. And that's where I, uh, that, like, if you hold your breath long enough, when a brain is in that excitatory state, it wants to breathe. Mm-hmm. And what that looks like is, well, just take a shot, just yeah. take a pill, just yeah. take something. Um, sex addiction, food addiction, gambling, things like that. They hit all the same receptors of, mm-hmm. we're going to do this activity that will take us out of this very, very uncomfortable feeling we are having right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of the, the groundwork mm-hmm. that I think a partner hopefully can get to a place of understanding with, mm-hmm. right? And it isn't their choice. They are they're trying to hold their breath as long as they can. Yeah. And it's until they start to kind of address it and build other mechanisms that help them breathe easier that's when they'll they'll keep coming back to it. That there's this biological component that it has overridden my nervous system and that this feels like the only option to help me breathe again. Exactly. So, you know, if one partner says, hey, I think you're drinking a little too much. And then the other partner is like, you know, I think you're right. I'm probably, let me slow down. That's probably normal. That's a normal Which conversation. Rarely ever happens. Rarely ever happens. <laughs> that's something that's probably a little bit more on the normal spectrum. Right. But when it gets to a place of, your drinking, your drug use, whatever it is, is ruining the family. And then they are incapable of addressing the behavior. We're into a different territory. Yes. We're into not not choice anymore. And I think it also creates defensiveness for the partner that may have enabled it to happen. And so that's the part where couples therapy comes in. But yes, uh, I, I, I think that's really helpful to talk about that your partner is not choosing alcohol over you. It is simply not, when they're in the addiction stage, it is simply not a choice any longer. And the, I think the one of the the shame cycle, the shame spiral that goes with it is, is the conversation that the addict is often having with themselves is, why can't you stop? Yeah. I love my wife. I love my kids. I love my husband. I want to stop. And then they get to that place where they can't hold their breath anymore. And then the shame spiral starts again, right? Because now I've, I've, I'm still drinking. 
I was sober for two weeks, three weeks, and I went back to it. And they just feel often terrible about it. And it starts that place of very uncomfortable feelings. And I have to manage this somehow. And that's often where you start to see like a lot of the hiding behaviors. Because yeah. they don't want you to know. They, they, they're they so ashamed that this is still going on that they'll go to great lengths to hide it. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And they, I found this bottle here. Or I found this Toilet bottle. tank. For anyone listening, toilet <laughs> tank is a, a really common one. Most of my clients like find empty bottles and mm-hmm. under beds. And mm-hmm. I think the thing that also makes it so difficult from my experience working with this population is that then I've, you know, probably if I'm in my addiction, been using this as my coping skill since I was a teenager. Yeah. Right. And yeah, so often. all the rest of us were learning coping skills, how to break up and yep. survive it. And so now you're 30, 40, 50 years old and I took your coping skills away from you. It was that bottle of alcohol, that yeah. pill, that whatever. And I'm like, dig into that bag of coping skills. Oh, you have none? Yeah. Oh, that reminds me of uh, long ago when I was in my residency. Um I was working in the VA uh, in Boston, and there was a, a gentleman who was a long-term kind of residential treatment there where he struggled with alcoholism, had all sorts of uh, health complications, had been homeless. His name was John, and I remember asking him, it's like, John, how old are you when you started drinking? He said, 17. I said, mm-hmm. what'd you do on a good day? He said, I drank. What'd you do on a bad day? Oh, I, drank. I, I definitely drank. I'm like, what'd you do <laughs> any day in between? He's like, I drank. And he said, so in some ways, you're still 17. Right. So he numbed that part of his brain that that could go through emotional growth and expression. Right. Because he never sat with those feelings. It was his coping mechanism. So at 55, he was in a place where the party was over. His body could not handle this anymore. He had to do things differently. And he had a lot of kind of catching up to do an emotional growth and reflection. So how do you, based on that and all the knowledge you have, how do you recommend that the partner who has the addiction speak to the partner that doesn't have an addiction about what they're going through? How do they articulate to them in a way that might help them understand their experience? There's a lot of layers to that onion. I think the the message in its perfect form would be, I do love you. I am part of this relationship. I am struggling with something that is often beyond my control. It is in my control to start taking steps to address it and manage it. But that's not going to translate into every moment I have control over this, that there is going to be a process for what this looks like. And that it's not, it's not really, it's not a rebuke of the person. It's not a rebuke of the relationship. It's just this is they haven't built in other mechanisms for how to deal with what they're going through in their life. Some of that will be part of the relationship. A lot of it won't be. It's just things that they weren't taught. It's things that they didn't get to experience. They skipped over a lot of milestones and this is how it's showing up now. And they often have co-occurring mental health issues and Uh, this has been the way that they've dealt with it where you come in. I never met someone who was an alcoholic that was just, that that was it, you know? Oh, that just seems oh that's your that's your checkbox. You know, that's uh, you just drink too much, right? There's always something underneath it. And so part of their recovery would probably be seeking out if medication management would be an important foundation to help them rebuild during this time. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one th- thing in there is is kind of this idea that, you know, if a partner is f- supportive but also frustrated by this there's this sense of kind of a miracle cure right they're going to go into a, a seven-day rehab they're going to get a lot of aa or smart recovery and that's it the the light switch has been turned off they're not going to struggle with this and i tell uh, the conversation i have with uh, people struggling with substance abuse all the time is the path of sobriety is not a straight one it's not 
uh, like TV or Hallmark movie where you just you put things down one day and that was that was the end of it. They this will be an issue for a long time. That doesn't mean that they're going to be actively using it. It just means that the support and recovery that they have to engage in is going to be a long term process. And that's just that's the part of surrender to the process. Yeah. And what I often tell my clients, because I have a couple in front of me, is I prepare the one that's not struggling. Your partner is probably going to relapse. Yeah. Right. And they look at me like, you know, how could you, both of the partners how could you, look at how me could like, you breathe that into life. It's like, like, but that's a good thing, right? Because through that relapse, you figure out where your areas for growth were. Mm -hmm. Like you were still hanging out with people, places, and things that maybe you forgot were not good for you, or what's a trigger for you, and you didn't recognize that that was a trigger. That relapse is not necessarily something bad. It's just information. Uh, is it all right if I turn this around and ask you a question? Uh, for sure, I'm ready. I would love to know. So. <laughs> In your, when it becomes clear that uh, a couple, one, one partner has been enabling this, how do yeah. you address that? How does that start to enter the room? Uh, multiple ways. I have to kind of understand why they were enabling. And so if I see some of it happening in the room, I will point it out because I'm a lovingly direct therapist. And I'll be like, that has been important for you because why? Why if you didn't go by him alcohol to celebrate he had a rough day at work or a promotion, what would that mean to you if you didn't acknowledge it in that mm. way, that you weren't noticing the things that he cared about? Or have you been doing it to avoid dealing with something that's mm. uncomfortable? And mm -hmm. how could we do it differently? Let's like focus on some of the tools that we've been learning that how do we have that difficult conversation without filtering it with alcohol or going out for a drink like we used to? What mm. tool might we use instead? Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's someone I'm working with right now who, uh, lots of uh, alcoholism, but he's been sober for a while now, probably yeah. a little, he had a, a relapse, but he's been sober for probably about a year and a half. He's been with his partner for 10 plus years. Mm -hmm. And now they're having to address some issues that they kind of covered up with alcohol. She supplied it, you know, he would drink. And now it's, now the conversation is, is that we avoid each other when we haven't had sex in like six months. Mm -hmm. It's like, ah, there's something deeper going on there. And so why are we not talking about that? Right. 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 Because we don't have a glass of alcohol in our hand or liquid courage to like. Liquid libido and all that <laughs> stuff that just kind of broke down your barriers and kept this comfortable rhythm that was literally killing him. So, I mean, you know, part of it is we have to step by step understand that the alcohol was the tangible problem in the relationship. Mm -hmm. But now we have to deal with all the things that we haven't been talking about. And so mm -hmm. that's where couples therapy is so crucial. And that is, again, why I don't necessarily attack the person that had the alcohol. The alcohol was symbolic of something we weren't dealing with. Right. You know, I uh, kind of a side note on this is where I've seen this play out in a very interesting way is bariatric surgeries hmm. uh, for people that have gone through the surgery or they lose a tremendous amount of weight. It really puts a, a magnifying glass on the enabling behavior that came up in the relationship and a lot of dysfunction that started to happen around. Well, I feel good and I'm feeling sexier now and just the insecurity that, that starts to bring up with the other partner. And it's kind of like they take steps back to a time where they were a little more happier and active and had more energy. And it really highlights that like some serious dysfunction that had been in the relationship. It was a lot more covert because it's, it's so much more obvious when it's alcohol or drugs or exactly. something like that. But when you start to get into like this territory, it's, it's harder to see, you know? Well, because the couple is maybe familiar, not comfortable, mm -hmm. but familiar with that dynamic, right? That I have so much guilt and shame about 
whatever the addiction is, my partner's comfortable with pushing that on me. Yep. And I've been willing to take it because I feel so bad about where I've been. So now we've got rid of a component. I'm working on my self-esteem. I'm working on cleaning up my healthy boundaries. And now I'm looking around and I want all of my relationships to be different. Mm -hmm. And so now I'm asking my partner for my needs versus hanging out in my guilt and shame. Uh Right. And so, yeah, it's, it's a perfect place for couples therapy. (laughs) So any last thoughts, anything that's important for those that are listening, that are in a relationship with either somebody that's going through a mental health issue or that is looking for ways to gather hope about how medication management would be important to introduce a topic about? Yeah. So you know, your partner who's going through it, I promise you has feelings about it. They have thoughts about it, even if it's really hard for them to discuss it and express it. Um, I definitely see that more with men than women, but women are not immune to this problem, right? There's still shame that, that is part of this. There's this mentality that, you know, why can't I just pull myself up for my bootstraps? And I, I tell people all the time, you know, if your knee hurt, right? You're gonna take care of it. You're gonna like maybe back off on running or exercise but you're not going to blame your knee. You can be frustrated How with it. How dare you? How dare you? It's not a moral failing of your knee. And yet we're so uncharitable with our own brains yeah. that, you know, it's like, how can I not work my way out of this? How can I not think my way out of this? But I also like to point out that you can't think about making your knee better yeah. and it gets better. You can think about your thoughts. You can think about your patterns. You can think about your brain and how it works and actually make it better. So you have this remarkable tool. You have this remarkable ability that comes along with it. But for the partner that's going through it, it's about being supportive. Part of that is also boundaries, knowing where you stop and they begin, that this is a journey that they are going to be on. You're going to be sometimes with them and sometimes not um, in terms of what they have to do to maintain this journey. And there might be times where they have to go seek real recovery and treatment, sometimes for 30, 60 days at a time, if that's part of their journey. But it's not a straight path. It does take time. The goal is to get to a place where their healthy managing substance abuse and relapse may still be part of it, but it's understanding that we're working towards something and we're trying to identify what's the healthiest for our relationship and for you. They didn't choose this. It's not something that they're going to be really thrilled about. They probably are going to be in a lot of shame and denial about it in the beginning. But in the end, they have to take the steps. And our job as a partner is is to be as supportive as we can and like a like a bird leaving the nest, support them as much as we can as they got to fly with this. Yeah. I'm so grateful to have a human face on medication management. I mean, I just, I think I speak on behalf of a lot of my clients that we don't typically get to see psychiatrists that are so invested in our clients' well-being and that you actually are like, have such a big heart about what they're going through. So I really appreciate what you're doing for changing the stigmas, even about the psychiatry world. So thank you so much for being on the podcast. Hey, thank you so much. This has been fabulous. Thank you very much for having me and all the things that you do and the work that you do with your clients. Thanks for tuning into the D spot. Find me, Dr. Dana McNeil and my guests on social media using the links down below. Subscribe for new episodes weekly and leave a comment letting us know how and if you can relate or what topics you'd like us to cover next. See you next time. And don't forget, going to therapy is cool.